Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum and networking platform at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series that we started in 2020 with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these SALT Talks, the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, uh, which we're excited to resume here in September of 2021, and that is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a platform for what we think are big ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to welcome another author to SALT Talks, and that is Edward Isaac Dover. Uh, Isaac is a staff writer for The Atlantic and its lead political correspondent. He's covered democratic politics for 15 years, beginning in his native New York City and carrying him through the Obama White House and then across 29 states during the 2020 election cycle. His reporting has won the White House Correspondent Association's Merriman Smith Award for Excellence and the Society of Professional Journalists Daniel Pearl Award for Investigative Reporting, among many other awards. He attended John Hop Johns Hopkins University and the University of Chicago, and he's out with a fantastic new book, which is what we're gonna talk about today. It's called Battle for the Soul, Inside Democrats' Campaign to Defeat Trump. Hosting today's talk is Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm. Anthony is also the chairman of SALT. And since we're talking about politics, I always have to add in another piece of his bio. Uh, he had a cup of coffee as well uh, for 11 days as Donald Trump's communications director. So looking forward to a fantastic conversation uh, about the 2020 election uh, between Anthony you know, Isaac, and he Isaac. Always, he always brings it up. He thinks it's like a shot in the shorts that I got fired by Trump. I mean, the good news—it's over, okay? Okay, Darcy, it's over, okay? It's over. Okay? You have to add the context. Really, a character in this book, so so I don't even have to mention the part—the part where you were working for him. All right, well, see, there, there we go. So I mean, even better, even better yet, all these other guys that come on, there's like five paragraphs of my ridiculousness in in their books, which is totally fine. But Isaac, first of all, congratulations, and uh, I want before we get into the book, though, I think it's important for everybody to lay out your background, your life, and career. Why did you get into political journalism? And then we'll, we'll dive into the book, but I want people to know who you are. Well, first of all, thanks for having me to do this. It's really great. And uh, I, I was saying right before we started that the SALT audience is uh, full of some of the best uh, people uh, that I'd want to have reading this book uh, anyway, and, and that you had me on uh, to talk about is really great. So I appreciate it. Um, as for me, I grew up in New York City, in Manhattan, uh, and went off to college thinking I'm kind of interested in politics and I'm kind of interested in writing. I didn't know what to do with any of that. Um, Got involved with various things, uh, did a couple of internships in college uh, at the Hill newspaper um, back when it came out once a week. Um, and that seemed like a big deal. Uh, and after I graduated college, I actually I had the, the nerdiest form of peer pressure, which is that everybody that I knew was applying to PhD programs. And so I applied to PhD programs. I got into none of them, uh, but I did get into a program for a master's degree at the University of Chicago. And I decided that I would go do that and see if that would lead me into a PhD program. The year that I was there was 0203. So I'm, now you can figure out exactly how old I am. Um, and uh, I think that basically what happened was I had not realized how much 
thing, uh, September 11th and the aftermath of it had really hit me and hit me as a New Yorker. I didn't know anyone personally who uh, was killed, but I did know uh, uh, the father of one of my best friends uh, was in one of the towers and escaped. Um, and 0203, that march to the Iraq war kind of shook me. And I thought, I can't be in academia. I can't be, I got to get really into this. I moved back home to New York uh, and started uh, getting involved in community newspapers, worked my way up, uh, was uh, the founding editor of a publication that's now gone. It was called City Hall uh, News, did a lot of political uh, New York City, New York State focused stuff. Uh, and did that until 2011, moved to Washington, uh, was recruited by Politico to move to Washington and, and be at first an editor there. And then I was uh, the lead White House correspondent for basically Obama's second term. Um, I, uh, after Trump won, not because of any political reasons, but because I felt like I wanted to actually get to an understanding of what was going on that produced Trump's win. Um, I came off White House coverage and was doing um, political coverage of all sorts of things around the country at Politico. In 2018, I moved to the Atlantic uh, right in the fall of 2018. The first day that I was on staff at the Atlantic, I flew out to Iowa for the first candidate who went to Iowa officially, and that was Cory Booker. Um, obviously, he uh, never quite <laughs> became more than that first trip to Iowa. Uh, and, uh, and then I was, uh, as John was saying, I was in 29 states over the course of the campaign, working, uh, covering the, the, the race day to day for the Atlantic. But in the summer of 2018 already, I uh, signed a contract for this book because I had a sense that this was going to be uh, a crazy election that a lot was riding on and that, um, in fact, it was going to be an election that uh, was going to be a lot about the Democratic Party trying to sort out what the hell it was supposed to be and how it was going to survive. I, I, yeah, and and so I, I was just gonna say, I, I never anticipated, obviously, the pandemic and, and all the things that came out of uh, 2020 itself, but uh, uh, so, so the campaign, <laughs> the campaign was crazy, but not uh, much more crazy than I anticipated it was going to be. So a couple, I have a couple of questions. So um, you're writing about the Democratic Party, and you're writing about the factionalism in that party mm -hmm. and how they, they picked an elder statesman effectively to try to do the best that he possibly could to unify that party. The flip side is you have a very factionalized Republican Party as well. It seems like both of these parties are no longer reaching what I would call the bell curve of the center of the country. It seems like most people are centrist and moderates, and you've got hard left people and hard right people. Am I right about that? Am I missing that? You travel to 29 states. That's my observation. Tell me if I'm right or wrong. No, I think you are right, and, and the election results kind of bear that out, right? Uh, Biden, if this were, if the primary campaign were won based on who ran like the best campaign by the campaign mechanics, Joe Biden wouldn't have won. Uh, probably Elizabeth Warren would have won. Uh, but that was not, that's not how campaigns end up going on, on the presidential level. Uh, someone once said to me that when you run for city council or for mayor or for governor or senate, whatever, any position other than president, it's like going in for a job interview. People look at your resume and say, okay, what have you done? Do I think you'd be good at it? But that running for president, voters make that decision based on how they feel in their guts. And Biden speaks to people's guts and he always has. Um, it's, I think his real strength as a politician is that he has that emotional connection with people. But he, he didn't start off well, you know. He no, not at all. Behind the eight ball. He got hurt in Iowa. He got hurt in New Hampshire. 
Uh, tell us your on-the-ground field experience about what was going on and how he was able to pull it off. And I should also point out to you that we interviewed the two authors of Lucky. Mm-hmm. Uh, they wrote their book Lucky because they said it was a close win for Joe Biden. People see the seven or eight million dollars in the uh, seven or eight million votes in the popular vote, and they're like, "Oh, no problem." But he really only won the election by forty-three thousand votes in yeah. the swing states. So yeah. tell us, tell us what was going on and how he was able to recover. Okay. The first time that I was in Iowa with Biden was at the beginning of June 2019. And uh, it was his second trip there. I had missed the first trip. Um, and the first event that I went to is in a town called Ottumwa, uh in Iowa. It's a small town. Uh, it's run on some rough times. And there's a theater there that they had said the event's going to be at. So we're going to the theater and uh, they have chairs set up in a hallway on the side of the theater, like outside. Um, And I thought, oh, this is where they're putting the reporters uh, to wait until we go into the theater. And then they wouldn't let us sit in any of the seats because they said that's for the audience. And (laughs) there were, uh, I can't remember the count was, I think it was about 80 seats, right? Uh, For the former vice president of the United States, uh, the the man who was leading the polls. um, And that really carried through most of this campaign, really all all of the campaign through uh, Super Tuesday when he, he won the nomination. This was not a well put together campaign. This was a candidate who was often stumbling through speeches and trying to figure out what exactly he was saying and uh, how he stood out in in the field. He didn't feel comfortable attacking other Democrats. That was always a problem for him. So the debates were always bad. Uh, and uh, and it was what happened as uh, a lot of the rest of the field coalesced in the way that it did. And some of the people dropped out um, because they ran out of money or they ran out of support. Um, usually it's when you run out of money that you drop out of a presidential campaign. Uh, and also, uh, look, if he hadn't been at the end the option other than Bernie Sanders, I'm not sure that his campaign would have taken off in, in that final uh, stretch like it did. I don't think he was lucky, though. I think that there were things that were going on, and, and the book gets into uh, some of the strategic decisions in addition to tracking what was going on in some of the other campaigns. But it was sort of, uh, <laughs> I said to someone with Biden, it's, if you look at the way that he won the presidency, it's almost as if it were written in the stars. And also the, the book tracks about 50 different ways where it almost came apart completely. You know, there's a uh, former a former president of the United States. He just do a lot of tweeting. He doesn't have a uh, Twitter account anymore, but he tweeted on the day that uh, Elizabeth Warren and uh, Mayor Pete Buttigieg came out of the race or thereabout that they were giving the election to Joe Biden. And and do you think that that was actually the case? I was wondering. I I, I looked at it and said, well, that's reasonably astute political insight that the moderates don't want Bernie Sanders to run away with this. And so they're going to drop out so that their number two, who happened to be Joe Biden, becomes their number one. What did, what did the former president miss? Well, look, I, <laughs> the former president is uh, many things, uh, but he is a pretty good observer of like basic politics. Right. Yeah. And, and I don't think that. Oh, listen, he had great he had great political instincts, particularly in 2016. <laughs> Definitely. Unfortunately, <laughs> Unfortunately, what, what his instincts were when he opened up the onion, there was a lot of rotten folds inside the onion, which obviously yeah. we all should be a little worried about. 
and I think that he uh, sometimes assumed that there was machinations going on when there when there weren't. It was not that uh, Buttigieg dropped out just to uh, screw Bernie Sanders, um, although he knew that that would be part of what happened. He dropped out because he knew he was about to get embarrassed and uh, and not win any votes. But it was, as I point out in the book, Buttigieg uh, endorsing Biden the night before Super Tuesday is the first time in the history of presidential politics that somebody with more delegates um, in a primary endorsed somebody with fewer delegates <laughs> um, and, and dropped out. Uh, Sanders what if you, one of the key moments for Sanders is in the debate in Las Vegas in February, uh, that's right before the Nevada primary or Nevada caucuses, I'm sorry. Uh, all the candidates are asked whether they think a majority of delegates should uh, would be what was necessary to win the nomination at the convention. Uh, and it was a question that Chuck Todd put to them. And all the candidates said they thought a majority except for Sanders. And he said he'd be fine with the plurality. And this lit up uh, a backlash in the party against him that was sort of the, the gunpowder was already um, in the barrel. Um, but that was the match uh, for a lot of people. Uh, I talked to a guy named Larry Cohen, who's one of uh, Sanders' closest friends and uh, political advisor of his, was not working on this campaign, but runs uh, that Our Revolution group that that is inspired by the Sanders folks. Uh, and he said to me, it's, it was the stupidest thing Bernie Sanders ever said. Uh, and and it goes from there to you know the, the the basic discomfort that a lot of Democrats had with Sanders. Some of it was left over from the Clinton uh, showdown in 2016, and some of it was thinking, are we really going to put up a socialist uh, senator from Vermont against Donald Trump? Um, th th these factors all ended up working in Biden's favor. Anybody else on that field could have beaten Donald Trump. I mean, it's the great what if, right? Uh, and uh, it's funny, when the pandemic hit, uh, I started to get from a lot of the campaigns, remember the, the sequencing of the pandemic is that Biden has basically wrapped up the nomination right before everything shuts down. Uh, and a number of the candidates' uh, aides were pushing, oh, this actually would have been a good moment for Elizabeth Warren because she has a lot of plans. Um, it would have been a good moment for Mike Bloomberg because people liked management experience. It would have been a good moment for Bernie Sanders because everybody was thinking, should we have healthcare for everybody? It does not seem to me that there's a strong argument that one of the other candidates could have won. Um, and uh, when you look at it, there, there's some focus groups uh, uh, that I quote uh, at the end of the book that were done with the famed Obama-Trump voters, right? People who voted for Obama twice and then for Trump in 2016. And uh, they were deciding Biden or Trump in 2020. And the read that they gave was on Trump, uh, basically, I can't stand him, but he knows what to do with the economy. It's not really fair to him what happened to the economy that, you know, it's like a meteor hit here uh, with the pandemic. And probably when the pandemic's done, he would be better to get us out of it. But I don't think he can get us out of it. Uh, the read on Biden was, He's a good man. I don't know that he knows what he's doing with the economy. I'm a little spooked with what's going on uh, and the, the defund the police and that. It seems very strange what's happening in the Democratic Party. But we need to get out of the pandemic, and I think he can get us through it. And that kind of that, that comfort that people had with Biden uh, and the, the comfort in his experience and in his personality, there isn't another candidate who really had that. So I want you to I want you to be the 
objective consultant. I'm hiring you, Isaac. Okay, and you have a bad idea to hire a reporter. You have have two (laughs) jobs. You're not a reporter in this case. You're this objective, omniscient, well-researched politico. And you're coming in, and I'm asking you to please evaluate for me the strengths and weaknesses of the Democratic Party going into 2022 and 2024. And if you were the party chair or you were the guru for the party, what would you recommend to them? And then subsequently, I'm going to ask you that same question related to the Democrats. You're the the, Democrats first and then Republicans? Whatever you want. You're the guru. You're the guru. All right. Well, the book's about the Democrats, so I'll start with the Democrats. Um, uh, The the Saturday before the election, I was in Miami. Uh, Kamala Harris was doing a bunch of stops uh, trying to um, get Florida where they wanted to be. And she kept on saying this line that was uh, towards the beginning of her speech that was something like, and I just want you to know, Joe Biden and I are both proud Americans. And at one point after she'd said it at three or four events, someone who was working on the campaign said to me, did you notice that, that, that line? And I said, yeah. And the person said, that's pushing back on the socialist stuff uh, that uh, they're saying down here in Florida. Now, my response to that was, it was a little too subtle for me to, find, to hear. And I'm the reporter uh, who was paid to be paying very close attention to this. And second of all, it, it, if that's all that they had as the pushback, uh, that really didn't seem like enough. They underestimated in Florida how powerful that argument would be, especially with uh, people from uh, Central and Latin America who either came themselves or had relatives there uh, and uh, are very suspicious of anything that says socialism, right? Um, And that's maybe more powerful when there's a closer connection to a socialist country, but it is a real issue for voters all around the country to think that Democrats uh, are turning towards socialism. And the truth is at this point, the uh, most of the people who are the most prominent, most often on TV characters in the Democratic Party are people who say that they tend towards socialism, other than Joe Biden and Kamala Harris and the rest of the administration itself. But Bernie Sanders, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, other (laughs) activist types, these, that makes a lot of people who are not socialists or socialist inclined themselves uncomfortable, whether or not that's fair. And that's something that the party really needs to deal with. But let me interrupt for a second. Is that a mainstream thought, socialism in America? Is that a thought for 10, 20, 30 percent of the people? Are they out of the mainstream with that thinking? I mean, look, elections are lost and won uh, usually by at most 20 percent in the middle going back and forth. It's probably less than that, really. It's, uh, you know. Uh, 45% of the people are one way uh, are going to go with the Democrat no matter what, and 45 with the Republican no matter what. Uh, and it's that 10% that you're trying to find. Now, that 10% can also be uh, accounted for by new voters turning out. And that's one of the arguments that's been going on in the Democratic Party. But uh, one of the things that uh, towards the end of the book that I get into is um, there was a protest a couple of weeks after the election in favor of the Green New Deal that was held right outside of the DNC headquarters in Washington. And uh, it was led by all the members of the, the squad. And Ilhan Omar, the congresswoman from Minnesota, comes and she uh, was she was giving a speech that said, you know, I, I had the highest turnout in America in my district. Uh, and people say to me, Ilhan, how do you do it? Ilhan, what? And it's because I gave them something to believe in. Uh, and she's standing there and she says it, and, and 
you know, it's true. She did have the highest rent. That's a district, by the way, that George Floyd was killed in. Um, it's a district in a swing state of Minnesota. Uh, it's a district that um, was represented by Keith Ellison, the attorney general now, before he was uh, attorney general. There's a lot going on in that district. Um, oops, sorry. Um, the uh, see, see, that's our YouTubeable moment right there. There you go. That's, you know, that's that's stuff the, flying the, around. The well, I usually get my young kids coming in karate chopping me on live television, so it's fine. Um, but the point the point that I was making is that she, uh, what she, I'm not sure she realized, uh, and certainly wasn't what she said that day, is that her district was the biggest drop off between uh, votes for president and uh, and a House member in the entire country. So it's true that people turned out and they felt like they had something they believed in. They were turning out for Joe Biden. Right. They were not turning out for her. So, and quickly, because the book is about the Democrats, what would you say for the Republicans? I I don't see how there is a winning strategy to lash yourself to not just somebody from the past, as uh, Donald Trump is at this point, but someone who has proven that he will never be satisfied, that no matter what, it's never enough. And uh, he enjoys making people squirm. You can see that he's doing that with Kevin McCarthy. Yeah. Uh, and we'll well, when you're talking about a battle for the soul, you got to say, do, do these any of these people have any souls? I'm just well, I'm I'm trying to find Kevin's that. soul. I, I, <laughs> I liked Kevin. I mean, I gave Kevin money. I, I was obviously a lifelong Republican. But I mean, these guys are uh, they've decided that they're just going to completely distort the facts and gaslight the country. So. I mean, we can go in that direction, but I don't think it's very healthy. I mean, that's that's its own question, right? Like, is it the good thing to do? Is it the politically smart thing to do? Is also, I think, very much in the air. Um, Obviously, the the reasons of where the trends are historically, a midterm for the incumbent president is rarely good. Um, And there are a lot of... uh, factors about gerrymandering in certain states that are going to give Republicans a, a leg up going into next year in the House races. So the Republicans are going to win the House? I don't know that that's a done deal. It, it almost like it, it shouldn't be a question. And I don't think it would be if not for these bigger factors going on. Right. So, uh, and, so and, typically, and, typically the party not in power wins the House. But in this case, because they're so screwed up, they may blow it. Yeah. It's sort of like if the Republicans don't win the House it's, uh, next year, it will I think be more because they lose it than that the Democrats hold on. Joe to Biden it. running for re-election? It's hard to tell. I mean, I, he is working really hard every day at that job, um, and uh, he'll be eighty-two. There are, you know, actuarial things that are are there uh, for him. But he really wanted to be president, and you know, the book ends with an interview that I did with him uh, at the beginning of February, and there's a level of confidence in him of like, yeah, I'm here. I'm finally in charge. I'm going to do it this way. That was striking to me. And I've talked with other people who've been around him uh, since he's been sworn in and they, they said the same thing. Uh, I don't know if that means that by the time that he gets to the end of the first term uh, and probably won't be all the way to the end, he'd have to make a decision in another, let's say 18 months uh, to let the party prepare if it's not going to be him. He may look at it and say, like, I want to give it another shot. I may be the only one who can win. That's how yeah, that's, I, I like, think he's going to run again. It's very hard to run away from this sort of power. But I've got to turn it over to the erstwhile blonde millennial, <laughs> because uh, the reason why you're going to be able to sell books is that 
all of his fan base tunes in to see him. <laughs> you and I are just a sideshow of distraction. Uh, but I have one last question. Right. For you, OK, is Trump running again? I don't think so. OK. Yeah. And, 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 you know, orange, and, orange is the, is the new black. As you know, he may be in an orange jumpsuit before this is over. We'll have to see. Well, I mean, that part, uh, I guess. We'll Let find me tell you out. something. I, I don't think you bring a criminal case against the former president and his former organization or his current organization unless you're pretty confident. I don't think you go. I don't think you take those steps, but we'll have to see. I got to turn it over to Darcy because I really want you to sell books. Uh, and uh, it's the battle for the soul. And the uh, the underlying pretext is what happened inside the Democrats campaign to defeat Trump. And, and I got to tell you, uh, I'm so excited for you because I think you're right at the edge of where things are right now. And I want people to go out and buy your book. But I got to turn it over to John Dorsey, which will guarantee <laughs> Isaac, that people buy your book. Do you need to stop talking until we get to that part? Yes, I know. <laughs> Absolutely. I got to put myself on mute for that to happen. I'm, my lips are going to be moving while John's talking to you. Hold on a sec. Isaac, I just want to clarify the point on Ilhan Omar because I think it's just a fascinating discussion point. So she talked about how you know, she had high turnout. Uh, and you talked about the discrepancy between Joe Biden's uh, share of the vote in her district and her share of the vote. Are you saying that it was the biggest drop off between the presidential candidate and the, the House representative? Yeah, the biggest. So uh, I don't remember the percentages offhand, but uh, the the most Biden got whatever it was, let's say 85 percent in the district. This is roughly where it was. Right. Uh, high 80s. Uh, and she got something like 66% or 62%. Um, and in most districts, it, it closely matches um, that the same number of people, you know, vote Democrat all the way down the line. That means that there are people who are who went in to vote for Joe Biden, like a lot of them who voted for him. And by the time they got to her, either didn't vote for her or voted for someone else. Right. And you think that's evidence that the more progressive and gives you something to believe in notion within the Democratic Party is misplaced. So going back to the point about, you know, whether somebody like Bernie with a more energetic populist message you think would have lost and that that's the wrong direction for the party. I, I mean, look, I'm not sure he would have lost. I think it would have been a much harder thing. Right. Uh, and uh, I think what that shows is that you see how, uh, one of the things, by the way, that it shows is, is Biden's own strong connection to black voters, especially older black voters that carried him through South Carolina and just uh, floated him right. even when everything else was going wrong for his campaign. But I think it, the Democratic Party right now is uh, sort of at a crossroads, right, of figuring out, do they see themselves as trying to be the party that uh, folks like Ilhan Omar and Ocasio-Cortez would like it to be and what Bernie Sanders would like it to be? Do they, for those folks, do they look at the Biden win and say, oh, you know, we, people just, they were so scared of Trump or they liked him, or whatever. It was a fluke, essentially. Right. Or do you look at the election results and say, you know what, like there was something to Biden that people connected with. And uh, it may not quite make sense by the usual political science calculations, but you see, I, I mean, I track a lot of moments in this book of the, these human connections that he was making with people and the way that people feel about him and the way that people feel about his, his approach to politics. I think there's a great example if you look at what happened a couple of weeks ago um, when the All-Star game, the ba uh, baseball All-Star game uh, was deciding whether to move out of Atlanta when Georgia passed those new voting laws. And 
Biden was asked about it and, and he said something like, you know, I think that's something that people should consider. He didn't say, say okay, right. if George W. Bush, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, just go in recent history here, had said anything like that, it would have exploded. And people would have gone to their separate barricades. We have to have the game there. We can't have the game there. Instead, what happened with when Biden said that is, certainly there was a lot of pushback to moving the game. And there are a lot of people who said that it absolutely had to be moved. But with with a certain uh, layer of people, it was, huh, yeah, maybe we should consider it. And that's something that is a power that Biden alone has, I think, because of the connection people have to him. And that's powering him through very well now. I don't think most people see him as like a, a acting in this super partisan way. And if you look at the polls, they don't. But the American Rescue Plan passed with only Democratic votes. Right. Uh, if the infrastructure plan passes, it'll probably pass with mostly Democratic votes, uh, if not entirely. Right. And and the same thing for, for any of the other things they're looking at. Right. You talked about how black voters essentially rescued Biden during the primary and basically rescued the country from Trump, more or less, in the general election. But the Hispanic vote was a fascinating phenomenon. So people just sort of took for granted or assumed that Biden and the Democratic Party had a stranglehold on Hispanic votes because of some of the rhetoric coming from Trump and his administration and their actions around immigration. But actually, we saw a big uh, move from from the Hispanic demographic towards Trump, especially in in Miami-Dade County, uh, other counties in Florida, in El Paso, Texas, for example. Do you think that's going to be part of a more long-term shift within both parties? Where you're going to see more uh, Hispanic voters gravitate towards Republicans and, you know, using the the messaging on socialism and and the idea that, you know, maybe unfettered immigration isn't a positive thing? Or do you think that was just a blip on the radar screen? I I think the socialism uh, argument that uh, Republicans make against Democrats is very powerful with a lot of voters. And I think it it seems to be particularly powerful with uh, with people who, as I was saying earlier, have a connection, not just are are Latino or Hispanic, uh, but if they if they themselves or they have parents or relatives who come from a country that has had bad experiences with socialism, that resonates. And you saw that happen in Florida. Um, it's really hard to argue that if the Democrats had been able to quash the socialism thing, that they wouldn't have done better in Florida and might be, maybe even won it. Um, Donald Trump is very smart, as I said, about certain things in politics. He knows how to get to the base instincts of people. There was a reason why they kept saying socialism and why he kept talking about socialism. It worked. Uh, and uh, I, I do think that that long term is a problem for, for Democrats. Uh, I'm not sure that you will see uh, any clear movement of Hispanics overall, but that that's bad news for the Democrats who assumed that more Hispanic, more Latino population, um, more voters who were Latino uh, means more votes for them. Uh, and particularly in a place like Texas, the Democrats have been thinking for, I don't know how many election cycles have we done? There's like, this is the one that Texas is gonna be Democratic. Well, like it's not, it's not happening. Yeah. And and now where is the interest in, in uh, Texas for 2022? It's in uh, Matthew McConaughey running, right? Who I, I we can check. All right, all right, sure. all right, all right. And I don't think that there's any Latino blood in Matthew McConaughey. I believe his wife is Latina, but uh, <laughs> there you go. I'm not I'm not a Matthew McConaughey expert. <laughs> yeah, you know the, the the celebrity thing. They're trying to repurpose that uh, that strategy, but. 
In terms of how President Biden has governed, do you think uh, that he's governed in the same vein that he campaigned and been a moderate and been restrained? Or do you think that he's moved to the left? And what do you think the country's response to the way he's governed has been so far? Uh, it's one of the things that I track in the book a lot. Um, I don't think the presidency that he is having uh, is anywhere like the presidency or anything like the presidency that he thought he was going to have. And that is because of the pandemic and uh, what was exposed by the pandemic and the opportunities that were created by the pandemic. Uh, he sees himself now in a, a special and perhaps unique moment in history uh, to change the way that things go in this country. Uh, he has, when I was talking to him, he pointed out the Franklin Roosevelt portrait that he has hanging over the, the fireplace in the Oval Office. I can uh, pretty much guarantee you that that would not have been uh, the, the uh, main portrait that he would have hung in the Oval Office uh, before. I don't know who it would have been, but uh, it, seeing himself as this new Roosevelt is because of what happened here, right? Um, and now I think that what he is doing is very reasonably making the assumption and the argument that there's a difference between the kind of pushback that he gets from Republicans in Congress versus Republicans out in the country. And you see that the, the American Rescue Plan had uh, much higher poll numbers than you would have guessed based on that it didn't get a single Republican vote in the House or Senate. Um, and among Republicans, right, higher poll numbers. That's the pitch that he's making to the country. Um, and it seems to be working. People just look at him and, and seem to think like, eh, he can't be that far out there. Even though when you look at the substance of what he's talking about here, this is major legislation, major structural change to this country, and uh, things that progressives a couple of years ago would never have thought could be possible and definitely didn't think would be possible in a Joe Biden presidency. Right. It seems like the punches that uh, the Republicans are throwing at Biden right now in terms of trying to criticize his administration are not landing. They're trying to liken this to Jimmy Carter 2.0, where you have Fuel prices went up, but that was because of just a black swan event, the hack that happened on the pipeline. Uh, they're talking about lumber prices and the inflation that's being caused by all this fiscal irresponsibility. But if you are the Democrats right now and you're you're sitting in their strategic seat, what candidate uh, on the Republican side would you be most worried about based on where your party is? So I'm not sure what the answer to that is. And, and again, um, I... I I think that history will have a pretty clear judgment on uh, Trump's presidency. Uh, but whatever you think of him, good or bad, or whatever, um, especially if it, for Democrats who found him abhorrent, they sort of tend to overlook how skilled he was politically and how good he was at connecting with people. And I'm not sure that you see anyone of the prospective Republican candidates who has anywhere near that skill set. Um, whether it's Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, Ron DeSantis, Nikki Haley, uh, the the, mo the names that we've talked about so far, like it, it's not they have other skills. They're just not as good at the political part of it uh, as as Trump was. I think we all underestimated how good Trump would be at connecting with people, but that's I think in retrospect because we didn't appreciate how much he had sort of trained by all the ways that he was out there and all the ways that he had embedded himself into people's psyches. I mean, I have spent a lot of time in the pandemic uh, cooking, as we, many of us have, uh, and I've watched uh, too many 
uh, old sitcoms on like Amazon Prime and Hulu and whatever else. And it is astounding to me how much Trump shows up as just throwaway jokes. Um, I, I will tell you, I found an episode of Perfect Strangers, which I used to watch when I was a kid. I was watching it on Hulu and there's like, they, they think that they win the, won the lottery and uh, Cousin Larry says like, ha, take that Donald Trump. That's crazy. There's no one else who has that kind of connection to us all culturally. The only other person I think does uh, is Oprah. Um, right. Oprah's politics are not gonna put her in a good place in a Republican primary, I don't think. Yeah, I mean, he's a brilliant marketer. And as his business career has shown that as a real estate developer or as a governing politician, he doesn't necessarily excel. But in terms of marketing the message and building his brand, he does a fantastic job. On the Democratic side, let's say Joe Biden uh, serves one term, he decides not to run, or even if he does run in in seven years from now, what does the bench look like in the Democratic Party? Who do you think are going to be ascendant stars uh, that are going to take this this baton uh, from Biden and lead the party forward? Well, look, the most obvious one, of course, is Kamala Harris. Uh, She's incumbent vice president. It's always going to be where things are. Uh, Harris does seem to represent uh, what the face of the party, uh, more uh, ethnically, racially diverse, a woman, right? Like that's where the base of the party is going. Uh, and uh, but certain she, people within the party don't like her. You know, they they think that she comes off as unlikable. She comes from California that's, you know, experienced some, some issues. You see some, you know, we work in the financial industry. You see people from Silicon Valley moving to places like Miami because of their dissatisfaction with things that are going on in California. Right. Is she likable? Is she the one just because by default she's the incumbent? Isn't likable? Then we learn that that's a word that uh, when it was used about Hillary Clinton has a little bit to do with uh, sexism, misogyny, uh, right? <laughs> um, I'll get some hate mail. I will quote uh, something that Jennifer Palmieri, who was uh, the communications director for Hillary Clinton, has said, and it's that like it's very hard for us to think of a woman in power and a woman being president because a woman has never been president. Um, so we don't have that frame of reference, right? And I think that Harris is. Uh, trying out how that looks for uh, the right. and, and and getting people used to that. Uh, she's the one who's the most likely to uh, be in that position because she's vice president. There are other ones out there too. Of course, a lot of uh, attention has gone to Pete Buttigieg, even though he's transportation secretary. Um, and, uh, and I think you'll see other senators and governors come up. One of the things that happened very much in the Obama years is that there was a just ravaging of the bench uh, and not a lot of Democrats that are uh, left uh, in uh, fr- in the up and coming generation uh, from uh, the pre 2012 2014 years. So you've just had you know five six years of new people coming up, and of course Harris is one of them. Right? right. She she's the vice president now, but she was elected to the Senate for the first time in 2016 on the night that Trump won. That's in the book too. Her, her right. trying to figure out uh, what it is to be elected to the Senate and being happy about it, but also like that Trump wins, she's completely spooked by it. And there's a scene at the early in the book of her coming to her party and wanting to like speak to all the people there and celebrate. And her staff says like, we got to get you out of the building. You can't answer any questions. (laughs) Did did Obama want Biden to be president? We've covered this with a couple other authors that we've had on that have, that have chronicled uh, the lead up to and the 2020 election. Uh, about some frostiness that might exist between the two of them uh, based on the handling of 2016 and then 2020. Did Obama want Biden to be president or how do you think he's evaluating the party right now? 
So I, want is a, a, a complicated question, right? Um, I, he did not, he was not convinced that Biden could be president um, there or could win the presidency, not could be president. Um, there's a, a moment early in the book uh, when he's flying back from a Christmas party at the end of 2017 uh, that was in Chicago for the Obama Foundation. And they're talking on the plane and he says, okay, in your head and in your heart, who do you think in your head could win? Who do you think in your heart could win? And who, uh, or who do you want in your head to, to run and in your heart to run? And who do you think could win? And he uh, himself picks Bill McRaven, the Navy SEAL commander for the Bin Laden raid for his head. For his heart of Admiral McRaven, he spoke in SALTA in 20 minutes. <laughs> um, he, in his heart, says, of course, Biden. I love Biden. Who could win? I'm not sure. I don't know. He was talking a lot about how uh, physically taxing the job of president is uh, and that it's hard for older people. When people would hear him say that, they're like, OK, we get it. We know who you're talking about. Um, uh, he would talk about uh that he didn't know if Biden would be able to connect with people. There's a moment from when Biden is still vice president and he's flying an Air Force Two and he says to somebody, uh, he's talking about Obama and he says, I've never seen somebody who's better at talking to 10,000 people than to one. Uh, right? And that's what he says about Obama. And Obama's feeling about Biden was like the reverse of that, right? It was like, yeah, Biden's great, like talking, chumming around, but like he can't like put lots of people in a rally and rev them up. Um, right. And, you know, there are realistic factors of would Biden's campaign have looked uh, worse in contrast to Trump's if he had been spending all of last year doing rallies instead of not because of the coronavirus. Uh, So your question was, did Obama want Biden to run? I think it comes down to skepticism. Uh, he, He loves him. But he he's not convinced. Um, and to, you see that all the way through the end of the, the campaign, this feeling of like, I, OK, like, I guess this is working. It, better, right, work. Work. it better work. But like, <laughs> right. um, yeah, he certainly waited till sort of the last hour to uh, to make that formal endorsement, which yeah. Biden said that he asked Obama not to endorse him. And I think people definitely believe that version of events. Wink, wink. Yeah. Um, but. Edward Isaac Dover, it's been fantastic to have you on Salt Talks. The book is called Battle for the Soul, Inside Democrats' Campaigns to Defeat Trump. Maybe there'll be another one of those campaigns uh, in four years. You say no, but you, you well, never I know. Said, I said I'm, I'm not, I, I'm, I would You're be not convinced. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, it, I, I'm not going to comment on that, but um, it, it would be interesting if it does happen. But I, I think there's there's at least one person on this this uh, salt talk that, that hopes it doesn't, but, um, and I'll leave people guessing about who that is, but thank you so much for joining Anthony you have a final word before we let Isaac leave. First of all, how do you know that I don't want that? Cause you know, that would be a lot of fun for me. Okay. You know, Isaac, I didn't say it was you. Isaac I knows I like fighting. You know, my wife, Isaac, my wife says to me, now that Trump's gone, who the hell are you going to fight with? Yeah. And make sure it's not me. Okay. So that's why I pick on Darcy on every salt box. Yeah, exactly. He fight with somebody so, or something. Exactly. So how do you know that I don't want Trump to run again? I mean, that it, could be, it might, the it might be better for me, actually. I'm just asking you, Isaac, God bless and congratulations on the book. And uh, hopefully we can get you to a, uh, one of our live events. I'd love to the world clears up a little bit. I'm fully uh, vaccinated. So we're we're rooting for you. Yeah, we are too. And we're rooting for you. And uh, I look forward to reading the book 
I apologize that I didn't get it. I didn't get access to it before the talk, but uh, I will definitely read it and I'll let you know what I think. Uh, well, and I, I wish you the I, best of luck with it. I, I appreciate that. I, I know you're usually really. really I also I also want to apologize for the way we're dressed. Okay, uh -huh. because even though we're in the office, for whatever reason, we weren't wearing the fancy pants clothing that you are. So I feel a little well, bit off. It, you know, it's the reverse for me because I'm I'm sitting in my home, uh, but I, <laughs> I put a tie on for you. I've had a tie on, I don't know, maybe six times since the pandemic hit. But for you, Anthony. I All right, but are you are you are you wearing champion shorts from the waist I'm, down? I, I'll tell you, I, I'll admit I'm not wearing shoes, but I am wearing pants. Um, All right. So. <laughs> there you go. That, I mean, that's, that's, that's congruent to other COVID fashion. So God bless. Uh, congratulations on the thank book. You. We wish you well. We'll see you soon. Thanks. And thank you, everybody, uh, for tuning in to today's Salt Talk with Edward Isaac Dover talking about his book, Battle for the Soul. Just a reminder, if you missed any part of this talk or any of our previous Salt Talks, you can access them on our website at salt.org backslash talks or on our YouTube channel, which is called Salt Tube. And we're continuing to build out our website. We have full transcripts available there, links to subscribe to our YouTube channel, as well as some key quotes that we pull from every episode. So definitely uh, salt.org. And we also have Salt New York, our conference coming up in September. Registration for that will open in June. So we hope as many of you uh, as, as is possible and safe can join us there. Uh, but on behalf of the entire Salt team, this is John Darcy signing off from Salt Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.